This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. I'm Jarrett Lay, a current CCCP student here at Columbia GSEP. Today I will be speaking with Rahul Mayotra, who runs RMA Architects in Mumbai and Boston, and is also a professor of urban design and planning at Harvard GSD. This evening he'll be presenting the Kenneth Franton Endowed Lecture, and beforehand we'll, we'll be discussing a few topics. Thank you for joining. To get things going, I'd like to start with your 2007 proposal for uh, Magic Buses Campus for Children Living in the Slums of Mumbai, which understands the selection of materials and an agile tectonics, here taking the form of a kit of parts, as having a political efficacy within the urban questions posed by these settlement practices. I was wondering if you could expand on your approach to materials and how you deploy them in projects with social justice intentions. Well, that's an expansive question, but a very good one. In the case of Magic Bus, the deployment of materials was very specific to that project, which was that we set ourselves the kind of agenda or a kind of mandate that we would use for the campus found materials in slums. And we did this for two reasons. Uh, one was so that there would be a sense of familiarity because these kids who go from slums for a weekend to this campus to be educated and you know, to, re- to recreate, to play sport, etc., should not sort of feel that they've been transported into a magic world. Uh, and so we use materials that would be familiar. But we reconfigured those materials, such as uh, corrugated metal sheets, uh, recycled wooden planks, rubble, stone masonry, etc. But we recycled them in more sophisticated ways. And I think for me, the agenda there was, uh, idealistic maybe, uh, was that these kids would see the same familiar material that their everyday lives are contained in, uh, reconfigured in a more sophisticated way, with uh, the aspiration, at least from my end, that when these kids became teenagers and actually helped their parents repair those houses, they might have imbibed subconsciously uh, some of those lessons, and that they might reconfigure this in the image that they saw on this campus that they went rather frequently to at some stage uh, of their lives. In other projects, uh, I think materials are a very important component for us, and we pay a great emphasis on using local materials as far as possible. Now, you could argue reinforced concrete is a universal material, but it's local in that it's produced locally, at least in a place like India. And in fact, the kind of frame structure, the domino house that, that Cobb sketched up, I would argue is almost the Indian vernacular, because when you travel through that country, you see it uh, everywhere, because it's something you don't need an engineer or architect to do. Masons have learned how to do this. And so there is a politic involved here in terms of the question of what is local material, and I would define it as what is locally available, but also that locally the capacity of the skills exist to configure the material in productive and efficient ways to create habitat. Very interesting. I'm I'm curious when you when you spoke about the, how you developed the palette for the Magic Bus campus. What sort of research was used to support that decision? Actually, uh, to be quite honest, an intuitive leap. This is what we thought through. Slums uh, usually, or squatter settlements, or auto-constructed environments, or favelas, however you might refer to them. There's a limitation of the kinds of materials they're made of. They're four or five or six. So it was easy to map these and kind of engage with it. We didn't quite honestly 
take materials from actual slums and recycled it. We just responded to the kinds of materials that are used in slums. And it was really an aesthetic response. It was also a response in terms of the intelligence and protocols that go into building. For example, in uh, favelas and slums, usually people build a base that's heavy in masonry or in brick, uh, again, often found materials. And then sometimes when they have to expand surreptitiously overnight, they do it in very light materials Mm -hmm. like metal and steel so they can actually fabricate it overnight and it appears before anyone from the authority can come and nab them or stop it, Mm -hmm. etc. So we used principles like that, which then gave us an aesthetic that I believe resonated with people who say were familiar with those environments, Mm -hmm. in this case, the children. So you mentioned these sort of before any authorities could catch them in these sort of self-directed construction practices. That leads well into my next question. Uh, you designed an uh, elephant and caretaker housing facility, and you emphasized that that a focus on the landscape and its hydrology was a technique for overcoming the challenges of working within the bureaucracy of the Indian government. So I was wondering if you could expand on these challenges and the larger political context in which your practice is, is operating within those bureaucracies and governmentalities. So there are two questions embedded in, in what you've just asked me. One was the rationale for the project, which was in this case uh, using water as the organizing principle because this was a habitat we were creating for elephants and their keepers in a desert climate. And mm-hmm. so without water for these otherwise tropical beings, life would not be possible. And so strategically, we organized the capturing of water, the organizing of water as a resource, as the organizing instrument, so to speak, for the site planning. And so that was a little outside the kind of mandate, because usually landscape and imagination through the lens of landscape is not what public works departments operate through, as in the United States and anywhere else. It's always something that you've got to bring on the table. But then using the narrative of water being critical to the health and the survival of these animals and therefore by extension their keepers or vice versa. It was something that I think the bureaucracy embraced. Having said that, uh, I think the second question sort of extends from it, which is the bureaucracy. What does that mean? How do you engage with it, etc.? And in this case, the way I like to explain it is that projects like this that are complex, you can actually unpack even what you call the client. And so you have a patron client, you have an operational client, and you have a user client. And I think in these kinds of complex problems, which are contested because it involves low-income communities, it involves bureaucracies, sometimes the connection between the bureaucracy and the low-income communities is very minimal, then the moment you begin to see this as patrons operational clients and user clients, you begin to negotiate the project differently. Because finally, you have to create a synergy between all those three. Operational clients are like the public works department, and they would go ahead and build what they needed to build based on their specs. It might have nothing to do with the user client. And how do you bring the voice of the user client to bear on the conversation? And how do you leverage politically the patron client, which in this case would be the chief minister or the politician in the state, uh, and get them to bear on you know, either allocating resources or reversing decisions which you believe are not good for the project or for the life on that campus, etc. And so I think uh, as the problem gets often more wicked, uh, you've got to also break the client as an entity down that you're negotiating. It's not a... So in a single family house, the patron client, the user client and the operational client collapse into one entity. And that's why we can create wonderful architecture at a single family house level. But the moment it becomes a project that in involves the public, so the government,
different, it gets much more complex. It's absolutely fascinating to hear how the sort of the standard architectural production practice becomes a space of political negotiation, right? Which kind of positions two questions, the, which positions the work of the architecture itself as a political technology one, and then the second, the process itself as also being a political technique or a political project. So with this project, if we were to understand in some senses that the design decision surrounding the management of water was also a political decision to manage the clients, in other projects, could you expand on how those sort of design decisions actually were in fact that of negotiation in order to achieve a political end? Well, I mean, I think it varies in different projects. I think in a project like the Elephant Habitat, it was a much more difficult project, probably the hardest project we've ever done. But the the definition of each of these entities and what their relationships were and what one had to negotiate between those relationships, because they were so contested and so polarized, it was actually clear. But that means bringing them together and synthesizing those decisions was yeah. incredibly hard. In other projects, like, for example, a building you're doing for a corporation for the headquarters, an office building for a software company or an infrastructure company, it's somewhat easier because the patron and, and the client are usually one entity and the user are the people who work there. And that's when a weekend house, when they all collapse, it becomes even easier. Mm-hmm. It's more difficult in terms of the kind of attention you have to give things. But at least in terms of the politics of the project, everyone is on the same side of the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in different projects, the number of people on different sides of the table yeah. varies. The elephant project, you could imagine a square table with four people on completely different sides sitting across the square table. Whereas in a corporate building, you have often you're on the same side as the patron and the user and the the client and the users might be on the other side or you might be on the side of the user and you're negotiating with in partnership with the users, with uh, the owners of the project that look, we need a bigger cafeteria, we need more toilets or, you know, whatever, we need more windows. We can't be all put, you know, on windowless spaces, etc. So I think in my experience in working in India, which is an extreme condition where some of these kinds of polarities, disparities, inequities get incredibly highlighted and heightened, so to speak. Some of these ways of instrumentalizing negotiations between different forms of the client entity, uh, different user groups, different climatic conditions, uh, different income groups, uh, etc. become heightened. And I think my experience of working there in the last 25 years, I'm beginning to see more clearly how by nuancing our own relationship with different aspects of the client body, which I, I see as multifaceted and not singular, one has been effective. In some cases where one couldn't recognize that, and this is something I'll speak about in today's talk, one failed. Uh, and in retrospect, one realizes now that one didn't connect either with the users enough or didn't recognize mm-hmm. that you had a patron who wasn't interested in the project, so why even get engaged in it, yeah. uh, etc. And so I... I think uh, looking at the entity of the client as a patron client, an operational client, and a user client has, I think, allowed me to think about ways of politically negotiating many decisions in our projects. In a way, it seems like the architect is just as much a diplomat as they are a designer in that sense. Would well, you agree? so diplomat is one way of, is a word, I'm not sure it's a word that describes it. I mean, I, I think I would say a negotiator, someone who you know, oscillates between 
advocating for different groups within a project. So I think an advocate perhaps is a more, not productive, but a more um, operational kind of things. And I think what we do when we make models to convince clients, or we make drawings, or we do cost-benefit analysis, these are all the instruments for advocacy. So we are either only use those instruments and think that to advocate is not really what we do to different groups and we choose to advocate with one of these groups mm-hmm. within a kind of nuanced understanding of the client or we only advocate and don't have the instruments yeah. and expect the client to listen to what you have to say. So I think in my experience again that I think we are responsible for both advocating and the advocacy component but the construction, creation, formulation of the instruments for advocacy, they go, they go together. And I think that as an idea, I think is valid all the way from a little single family house to working at complex city projects. Absolutely. In a book in which you recently uh, edited, you, you speak about the ephemeral megacity of, of a Hindu festival that converges every 12 years. You offer a fascinating overview of the various complexities and fluidities of of infrastructure, materials, people, governance that converge on this hydrological site. I was wondering if you could speak to the ways in which disciplinary modes for accounting for the urban condition fail when faced with the ephemeral. In what ways you have to reshape the thinking that's incubated at, at architectural academies around the world? Where, where are things being pushed? Where do they slip and where do they fail? So the short answer of that is that I think in our pedagogy, permanence has become too much of a default condition. And as a follow-up to the Kummela book, which you, you've just described, uh, the new book is called Does Permanence Matter? And it actually maps ephemeral landscapes and for which we've created a taxonomy, which is the ephemeral landscapes of celebration, of religion, of transaction, which is markets, of extraction, which is mining towns, of military, of disaster, of refuge, and so on. And the idea was that each one of these have different mental, cultural, social, political conditions and should be looked at differently. Again, it's a way of expanding that idea to understand precisely what your question aims to ask. And in each one of these conditions, it seems to me, and we haven't concluded yet, we are, this is an ongoing research, that you need different configurations uh, and different collaborations across different kinds of disciplines to do that. And it clearly is an interdisciplinary project to understand this. A refugee camp is not a physical design project only. But physical design, I believe, can contribute a great amount to the way communities can be integrated, how refugee camps, which sometimes around for two decades, can evolve into settlements that are viable and so on. In the case of the Kummela, which was the first project we did here, it was for me the most wonderful, productive, interdisciplinary project. And in retrospect, one one reflects about it. Again, to go to your question about disciplinary knowledge and how it comes to bear, this was a wonderful interdisciplinary project because it was such an out-of-the-box thing to imagine. So we had about seven schools go from public health to religion to design to engineering to management, uh, the Faculty of Arts and Science, etc. And before we went there to study this ephemeral megacity, no one, no one had any idea what to imagine, and not even the design school students. Now, when, when you have a problem like that, where you are in your own disciplinary comfort, so helpless, you begin to open up to transgressions from other disciplinary knowledge, which means you allow the public health guy to 
tell you something and you kind of clutch onto that and, yeah. and you expand on that, etc. And so for me, the 40 students who represented all these disciplines, the 10 faculty who represented the disciplines, that project for us was one where I just felt we worked as an entity. And I learned a lot from that. And so maybe in our pedagogy, just to loop back to that, uh, I would say there are two things that one could learn. One is that we should question the notion of permanence as a default condition. So why not in the third year or the sixth semester or something when we are given a single family house to design for a weekend kind of resort somewhere that the students are asked to design a house for a client who knows in 10 years his kids, they're going to become empty nesters and he's never going to come back to this weekend house and swim in the lake and they're going to invest somewhere else. So how do you design a house for 10 years, let's say? How do you recycle everything? What is the material geography? How does the material come in? Where does it go out? I mean, I think we talk about sustainability and stuff, but in our pedagogy, it doesn't find its way uh, at all uh, levels. So then you begin to, in the student's mind, deconstruct the notion of what is permanence, you know. Uh, so that's, I think, one. And the other is that I think we have to be more innovative uh, for the world we live in, for the questions of sustainability, resources, etc., to even construct our pedagogical formulations in ways that there are problems that make students realize that they need to depend on the inputs of other disciplines and how then, of course, we structure that process that they can seek out these inputs. Uh, but just the realization that the enriching can happen from other disciplines and it's not only a spatial problem uh, should be something we have to more mindfully embed in our pedagogy for architecture, urban design, landscape architecture, but also planning. Absolutely. Were there any particular moments, I mean, when you speak about interdisciplinary relationships in this in this sort of discourses I'm, I'm curious if there are anything where you realized where so sort of the architects set out urban planners or design thinkers set out in a more traditional sense to solve a problem and then another voice came in and corrected or, or redirected it completely were there any moments of, of slippage in in that specifically that you could speak to in the Kumela project yeah. or just generally yeah. in, in the in, Kumela? Well, yes, of course. I mean, for example, I mean, the two ends of the spectrum were the design students who were obsessed with infrastructure planning, where were the toilets and the sanitation hubs, you know, located. And, and they kind of were, of course, obsessed with the physicality of it. When we went with the students from religion to thank a high priest who had allowed us to habit the city and supported us, she looked at us, blessed us, and said, be grateful that the mother Ganges, which is the river, allowed you to sit in her lap for a few days. It was a complete different imagination mm -hmm. of what the place was. And we went to a camp and there were women who were tending to wonderful flower beds, mind-blowing flower beds. And we asked them, I mean, how do you do this in, in like three weeks? This is going to be washed out by the river when the city disappears. And they said, well, we are here to exercise the sense of detachment. Uh, and so it makes the design school students then think about the materiality of the place, that if in the people who occupy this space, the users, their imagination of it is on a kind of temporal scale. It's ephemeral mm -hmm. as a moment. Whereas uh, the design school students are trying to codify the principles. Mm -hmm. You know, what does that mean? So it, it forces you to confront these questions and Think about your own position and your own mm -hmm. disciplinary position and your own position through the discipline of what you invest in terms of time, energy, money, materiality mm -hmm. in solving problems. Uh, do we overdo it? What is, what is, how do you calibrate this? Uh, how do you bring time to your imagination? Mm -hmm. uh, does permanence really matter in the way 
uh, we seem to imagine it. Yeah, absolutely. And in that, just even that, I think that speaks to the, the many valences in which materiality and these sort of, uh, I think you referred to it earlier, I believe is a, a material geography, if you will, uh, in which they operate, right? Like, and the ways in which the discipline, perhaps in presupposing a permanent condition, can ultimately erase other otherwise assumed or, or otherwise operating systems on a site. Oh, great. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with Arc Daily. We launched a new series of podcasts called Constructing Practice, in which young architects from around the world speak about their motivations, challenges, and what it means to start a new practice in their respective context. Look for it on iTunes and find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.